Well, my name is Greg Boyd. I'm a teaching pastor here at Woodland Hills Church, and it's really such an honor and joy to share this moment with all of you. Um, Christ is risen! He's risen indeed. Hallelujah. I just sense the spirit of the resurrected Lord here in this place. I'll tell you, it makes a world of difference. We all live in some story or other that we tell ourselves, and it makes a world of difference whether the story you're telling yourself is one that ends with your death or whether you believe in the resurrection and you know that this goes on forever and ever and ever. And you live in that story and frame your life in that story. Um, Whatever hardships come your way, and there can be some nasty hardships out there, whatever hits you, whatever attacks you, however bad the circumstances may be, however bad the health goes, whatever, you're able to see past that, and you know that this thing ends up very, very well. Hallelujah. Uh, Better than very, very well. God's love wins in the end. Hallelujah. To live in that story means... You can be an optimist however negative things are. If I, wasn't, if I didn't believe in the resurrection, I'd be very cynical. But I do believe in the resurrection, so I'm eternally optimistic. Hallelujah. All right. All right. And now they're calling this Jesus juice. Is that the word for it now? This, this, we used to call it the anointing. Me and Darlene were having a good time over there. That last song, we were getting done. Darlene, looking at, I will not forget. I will not forget. She, that was great. Good stuff. I'm going to read uh, the first couple verses of Romans. Uh, this is Romans 1 through, actually it's 1 through 4. Uh, I miscounted there. Someone corrected it last service. Paul says this, he introduces himself by saying, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel or the good news of God, which God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, that good news concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, but was declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by resurrection from the dead. Abba, Father, infuse this word with your authority to do what only you can do. Set captives free. Bring your kingdom. Liberate your people. Heal what needs to be healed. Restore what needs to be restored. Help us to see the power and beauty of your resurrection more deeply than ever before. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. 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 So the passage says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God uh, by the power of the resurrection. It's the resurrection that declares, that proves, that puts forth Jesus as this, the Son of God. This guy who was crucified on Good Friday was not just an ordinary random criminal that Rome rounded up to crucify. They did a lot of that. But what the resurrection proves is that Jesus wasn't just one of those. Jesus was... The Son of God, which means God incarnate. And uh, it means that, that what he accomplished on the cross, and what he accomplished on the cross just simply sums up what he accomplished throughout his life. But what he accomplished on that cross was victorious. And that God's love defeated evil. Um, were it not for the resurrection, Jesus would be probably nothing more than a little footnote in history. It was the resurrection that transformed the disciples from this band of scared guys hiding away and overnight transformed them into this bold band of missionary evangelistic disciples who went out in the Roman world to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and often paid for it with their lives. It was the resurrection that did that. Their, their, their hopes were dashed to the ground when he was crucified because they still thought he was going to be the resurrection or the, the Messiah that would come in and beat up the Romans and liberate Israel. When that didn't happen, they were just completely baffled and discouraged and scared. Overnight, they become this passionate group of Evangelist. Uh, and see, if you don't believe in the resurrection, uh, you, you, 
Good luck explaining what did transform them. They tell us that it was the resurrection that transformed them. If it wasn't that, then what was it? Uh, it's a hard thing to explain uh, if, if you don't accept the resurrection. But that's not what I'm here to preach on. Uh, that's just my little warm-up. The team that I work with to put together sermons thought it would be good on this Easter morning, 2019, to really ask what is one of the most basic questions you can ask, but it's also one of the most important questions you can ask, and that is, um, what, does the, what, what is it about the cross that the resurrection affirms? What is the work of the cross that the resurrection affirms and confirms and declares? A simple way of asking the question is, why did Jesus have to die? And how, how does that death affect me 2,000 years later? Why is that significant to us 2,000 years later? Why did Jesus have to die? And what makes the question especially important is that I'm convinced that the answer that most people are given, at least most evangelicals are given in answer to the question, why did Jesus have to die, is at least in, not comprehensive enough. It's, it's somewhat, in my opinion, misguided and jacks up some people's view of God. Um, this isn't a matter of doctrine. You're free to disagree with me on this or not. You just kind of hear me out on this, all right? Uh, this is what's called sometimes the penal substitution view of the atonement. And, and their understanding of why Jesus died it goes like this. Uh, see, God is too holy to even look upon sin, have anything to do with sin, let alone welcome sinners as they are. Uh, in fact, God's holiness demands that no sin goes unpunished. Sin must be punished. But God also is love, and God loves sinners and wants to save sinners. So God's holiness prevents him from welcoming sinners, but God's love wants to welcome sinners. What is a God supposed to do? There's kind of a dilemma here. And so in this view... The answer that the triune God came up with was this. That the Father, would, uh, instead of venting his holy wrath against humans, which would, according to most defenders of this view, mean that we would suffer eternally, instead of venting his wrath against sin towards humans, God would vent his wrath towards Jesus. And Jesus would be, uh, take on our guilt, and then would take on the punishment for our guilt, and the wrath of the Father would be vented. So now God is free to welcome us and love us as, as we are and declare us righteous and all that. The sin problem has been taken care of. And that's the main thing that the cross was to accomplish. So the resurrection in this view is the proclamation, the confirmation that uh, the sacrifice of Jesus was adequate to satisfy God's just wrath against sin, which gets us off the hook. And that's the version of the gospel I was given when I first came to Christ. And I understand the, the verses that people can put together to try to, to support that view. I'll just be honest with you, I've got a lot of issues with that view. I used to hold it myself, but I have come to see that I think it's got some problems. I can't go into all those problems now. Um, there's a book out there, if you want to go further into this, uh, it's called Understanding the Atonement, Four Views. And I have a chapter in there, uh, the view I'm defending, I'll outline it here this morning, it's called The Christus Victor View of the Atonement. And I debate with Tom Schreiner, who's a penal substitution guy, and we have a nice exchange, and then there's a few other views you can look at, so you might want to check that out. I'm just going to give you really quick a couple of the reasons, uh, a couple of problems I have with it, all right? Are you ready? Are you ready? Yeah. Are you ready? Yeah. All right. Truth, can you handle the truth? Listen to this. Number one. Look at, look at, if this view is right, that, that, that God had to punish Jesus to let us off the hook, it means that paganism had the right intuition, because pagans have been sacrificing people to appease God's wrath since time immemorial. I mean, they've been sacrificing their children and everything else, thinking that that's what it takes to appease the wrath of God. If this view is right, then their intuition was right. And I don't think that intuition is right, right? I think it's that one mark against the penal substitution view. Number two. As we always say around here, Jesus is the perfect revelation of God. If you see me, you see the Father. Well, look at Jesus had no problem hanging out with sinners. He did it all the time. That's the main folks he hung out with. Went to parties with tax collectors and prostitutes. In fact, the tax collectors and prostitutes wanted to hang out with him. 
And if he's the perfect revelation of God, if you see him, you see the Father, then clearly the Father doesn't have any trouble hanging out with sinners. And he didn't require that they sacrifice a goat or something before he'd hang out with them. Just as they are. He loves them as they are. Uh, and that tells me that, that there's something off that says that, that God has, can't hang out with sinners. Because, see, the holiness that Jesus reveals about God is antithetical, opposite to, the kind of, to that kind of holiness, that prissy, prudish, uptight, anal kind of holiness. They don't want to hang out with sinners. They don't want to, you know, the dirt might rub off on me. Ooh, I can't even look at those ugly people. It's not that kind of holiness. That's Pharisee holiness. That's, that's legal holiness. That's Inspector Chevert on Les Mis kind of holiness. But see, the holiness that Jesus reveals about the Father is the opposite of that. Because the word holiness means unique, distinct, set apart. And here's what sets God apart, is that this is a God who, not only is not prissy and you know, don't want to look at those sinners, he dives right into our sin and right into the curse that that sin brings. <laughs> that's holy. A God who just, out of love, absorbs that and takes it in himself. So... The second reason why I have a problem with it. The third reason is that uh, um, in this view, Jesus never, or God never really forgives. Look, if, if, if you owe me $1,000 and you can't pay, so I'm going to throw you in a prison for 1,000 years, but then someone comes along and pays your debt, so I let you off the hook. Well, you're glad I let you off the hook, but I didn't forgive your debt. Forgiving a debt is when you release the debt. You don't get paid. You just release it. Collecting a debt from somebody else is something entirely different. But see, in this view, God isn't forgiving sin. He's just collecting it from somebody else, namely Jesus. He gets paid. His wrath gets satisfied, to use the language of, of, of this view. And, uh, but the Bible says that God does forgive. All over the place, God's forgiving. And, and uh, that's enough to tell us that any of you that says he doesn't forgive, there's something that's gone off there. I mean, imagine if, see, we're supposed to forgive like God forgives. What if we forgave like that? Every time someone asks for forgiveness, we say, well... Find me someone who will pay the price, and then I'll maybe let you go. <laughs> would, would God be impressed with that kind of godliness? I don't think so. Forgiveness so is about releasing the debt. Fourth thing is this, and this is very concerning to me. Uh, on a practical level, this is probably the one that, that I have the most trouble with. Because, see, this view, it puts violence at the center of the Christian story. Incredible violence at the center of the Christian story. At the center of the good news that we're to proclaim in this view, at the center of it, is this proclamation that the Father's wrath was vented toward Jesus, uh, which means Jesus got killed, and because of that, now we don't have to receive the Father's wrath, and we don't need to be killed for all eternity. Uh, well, see, that's what's called the myth of redemptive violence. It's this myth that violence can redeem us. And now it's at the center of the Christian story, and it's had tremendous negative ramifications for the church. Uh, a guy named Tony Bartlett wrote a book called Cross Purposes. And he shows this. It's, it's I think, just fascinating. You know, for the first thousand years of church history, if you ask a random person, random Christian on the street, why did Jesus die? Their answer would be to free us from the devil's oppression or something along those lines. But then it changed in the 10th and 11th century when this view or something close to this view was first introduced and became very, very popular. It involved God killing Jesus so he doesn't have to kill us. And within 50 years, Tony Bartlett shows in this book, the church launches off on the Crusades, and then the Inquisition. And there's been, now there was violence before, because since the church got in bed with Constantine, they've been envisioning Jesus more like a military captain than, a, than, than, than the sacrificial lamb. And so there's been violence, but it was never institutionalized. Now it becomes part of the, what the church does as a church. And there's the wars on the Muslims, the persecution of the Jews, burning of witches and heretics. And, and, and then there's the Christian-on-Christian Christian violence that lasts for three centuries. Massive bloodshed because, see, folks, we always become the image of the God that we worship. 
And if you worship a God, if God, the all-wise God, solves the most important problem in the universe by killing somebody, well then, it just makes sense that it will, will sometimes, wisdom will sometimes require that we kill someone, uh, you know, for the greater good. And, and, and the church has been running on that ever since. I submit to you that the meaning of the cross is the exact opposite of that. Instead of having violence at the center, uh, a God who acts violent at the center of the story, there's a God who doesn't act violently at the center of the story. There's a God who suffers violence at the center of the Christian story. What the cross reveals is a God who would rather give his life for, enemy, for enemies uh, and, and die at the hands of enemies out of love for his enemies rather than to crush his enemies. That's what that's the center of the story. And see, you always become the image of God that you worship, and if you're worshiping that God, this nonviolent God, you'll take on that nonviolent character. Works for the better or for worse, but it's had tremendous ramifications in church history. And finally, the fifth argument I'll, I'll give you is this. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says this profound word, that God was in Christ. I'm still catching my breath in that last worship song, to be honest with you. It's like, oh, that was a workout. I burned 508 calories during that thing. That was, that's why I'm filled with Jesus juice right now. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's trespasses against them. Now notice here that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. He wasn't in Christ to reconcile himself to himself or to reconcile his justice with his love or his holiness with his love. As though those two things could ever be in conflict. Folks, if God is love, then every other attribute is an expression of that love. You can't have an internal conflict in God. But the cross wasn't here to try to reconcile God's conflicted internal being. The problem wasn't with God. The problem was with the world. The world needed reconciling. We were estranged from God. And to be estranged from God is to be estranged from the source of life, which means you're in death. The world was perishing, the Bible says. And when I say the world was perishing and the whole world needed redemption, I mean the whole world. See, one, another shortcoming of the penal substitution view is that it thinks that the only problem that needs to be solved is between God and people. As though people were the only ones who needed redeeming. Or worse, maybe everything needs redeeming, but the only thing God cares about is humans. But see, the Bible, from beginning to end, tells us that God cares about everything. It's not just humans. He loves humans, for sure, but God loves animals all over the place. You find in the Bible, he makes covenant with animals. They're kind of like his pets, and he loves the whole creation. He cares about the whole creation, and the whole creation is in need of redemption. It's all broken. I'm going to paint a little gloomy picture here, but see, you've got to hear the bad news if you're going to appreciate the good news, and you can only appreciate the good news to the degree that you appreciate the bad news, so here's some real bad news. Colossians, or, uh, uh, Romans chapter 8, listen to this. Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing, listen to that, not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed in us. Just imagine the worst suffering you can, and now try to envision a, a reality that is so great, it renders that terrible, terrible thing inconsequential. That's what Paul's saying. That's why I always say, you know, if, if it feels too good to be true, you're heading in the right direction, just keep on imagining that way, because... You'll never comprehend that. It's, the glory will outrun everything we can imagine. For the creation waits for the, with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. And he says, we know that the whole creation, everyone say whole creation. The whole thing has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, because we're part of the creation. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, redeem this body. The whole creation is groaning like, like a woman in labor pains. I'm told, never experienced that one, but I'm told that that is about the worst experience you can have, the most painful thing you can have. And the whole universe is, is going through that right now. 
You did this to me. This is your fault. Why did I ever marry you? Give me an epidural right now. I want some drugs. <laughs> the whole universe. Oh, good. You're laughing. It was that... I don't know what's politically correct anymore. I, 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 so it was, and I'm told, though, if, if, you're, if you're over 60, you, you, know, you get a lot waved, all right? Is that true? Uh, so, so don't hold me to... Okay, anyways. Anyways, you did this to me. The whole creation's groaning. Here's another uh, interesting passage. Paul says in Colossians, he says, For in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Everything that makes God God was in Jesus. And through Christ God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of the cross. Whatever else you think the resurrection confirms, it confirms a whole lot more than just about human beings being reconciled to God. It does do that. But see, we are reconciled to God because in Christ, God's reconciling everything to himself, and we're part of everything. The whole creation is in the process of being redeemed, which shows you the whole creation needs to be redeemed. What the resurrection confirms is a whole lot more than just about uh, human beings here. The whole creation is broken. The whole creation needs fixing. Now, how, how did that happen? How do how, we get in that situation? Why is this creation so screwed up? Now, the answer the Bible gives won't make some people happy because, see, the Bible affirms and Jesus affirms the reality of Satan and, and other spirit agents, sometimes called rulers or authorities or principalities and powers. I just refer to them as the powers for short. And, 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 uh, uh, a lot of folks say they don't, don't find it easy to believe in Satan and angels and spirit agents and things like that. Now, I've never found a good argument against it, against that belief in those things. And I could give you a number of good arguments for believing in those things. But for time's sake, I'll just give you the main one, and it's this. Um, Jesus clearly believed in Satan and principalities and powers and those things. They were real to Jesus. And I've got good reasons for thinking Jesus was the Son of God, is the Son of God, the embodiment of God. And if Jesus is God incarnate... Then, then, then I don't think you can be mistaken about such a fundamental uh, aspect of his theology. Uh, and so all my reasons for believing in Jesus, and if you want to know what those reasons are, there's several books out there you can read and find out about that. But all my reasons for believing in Jesus are now reasons for believing in the reality of these spirit agents, principalities and powers. And the reason why that's important, at least one of the reasons why that's important is because if you don't believe in the reality of these spirit agents, you're going to have a hard time even grasping, accepting, the full meaning of what Jesus did on the cross. Because Satan and the powers, as we're now going to see, are all wrapped up into what Jesus did on the cross. Now, we're not told a lot about that realm. You have enough to deal with here. But, but, but we're told a few things. And we, in piecing these, these pieces together from Scripture, we come up with kind of this scenario. That long before human beings were ever created, God created these spirit agents. And God is love, which means God is relationship, and God loves to do everything in relationship. And so God shares power and gives say-so to these angelic beings, just as God gives to human beings uh, say-so and power. And so just like we were given authority over the earth and the animal kingdom, uh, these powers were given authority over aspects of creation, fundamental aspects of, uh, of creation. And just as human beings have this free will, because it's all about love, and love's got to be chosen, and so we, we can use our authority in line with God or at cross-purposes with God. And when we use it at cross-purposes with God, it's going to now damage the earth and the animal kingdom that we're entrusted with. In the same way, but now in a macroscopic way, these powers had free will. And unfortunately, the one who was the most powerful of all, the one who later came to be called Satan, he led a rebellion in the heavenly realms. Something like a civil war broke out in, in the heavenly realms. And... Um, and it was at that point that they begin to use their authority over creation at cross-purposes with God. 
And so they begin to use their authority to corrupt. Even nature itself begins to be corrupted. Everything comes under their polluting, corrupting influence. And that's why nature, as we now find it, isn't the same as nature as God intended it to be. You can still see the glory of God in aspects of nature and the wonders of the universe, but you look at nature closely and you'll see a lot of terrible violence. It's red in tooth and claw, as Tennyson said. Uh, it's, violence permeates it. And you read Genesis 1, and that was not part of God's ideal. How did it get this way? It's by the pollution of the powers, the corruption of, of the powers. Which, by the way, was the uniform view of the early church. When they saw it, experienced disasters and famines and tornadoes and mudslides and diseases and cancer and all that kind of nasty stuff that nature throws our way, they didn't say, oh, it was an act of God like our insurance policies do. No, they say it must be God's will like a lot of Christians do. No, they say this an enemy has done. This is a result of nature being screwed up by the powers. And there's a demonic force behind all of this. They realized that they were living in this fallen war zone. And see, in my, opinion, in my view, one of the jobs that humans had from the beginning, made in his image, was to partner with God in bringing back, in taking back this earth and pushing back on the corrupting powers and instead manifesting God's will on earth as it is in heaven by how we manifest his character as we have loving dominion over the earth and the animal kingdom. That was the plan from the start. We're going to be the partners. Unfortunately, according to the biblical record, our ancestors got seduced. Instead of guarding the garden, Adam was told to guard the garden and subdue the earth. Instead, he succumbs to these powers. And they get seduced into joining this, uh, this rebellion. On the wrong side, we become enslaved to the powers. And the authority that we had over the earth and the animal kingdom is now surrendered over to Satan and that whole kingdom. Which means, folks, that we are in a royal mess. We've, it, we're, the Bible doesn't give us a real rosy picture of this world. Because of this rebellion, it tells us this. Satan is, is called, uh, three times Jesus calls him the Lord of this world. The archon is the Greek word. It means highest ruling authority in any region. Who's boss? Satan, who is this evil, evil being, is the boss of this world. You wonder why it's all screwed up? There you go. The, he's the principal power of the air. This, this, the air was, uh, in first century cosmology, the way of referring to the, the uh, spiritual authority over the earth. And uh, so the, the spiritual authority over this earth, according to Paul, is Satan. And he's the god of this age. The god of this age. What a thing for a monotheistic Jew to say. Uh, he's the evil one, according to John, who controls the entire world. Now, there's got to be some hyperbole there, since I don't think he controls everything. But it shows that, that, that this being has got massive influence, destructive influence, what makes it terrible is that he is the thief who comes to kill, steal, and destroy. This world right now is being ruled by a thief who comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. If he ever looks like he's doing something else, don't trust it because he's only here to kill, steal, and destroy. He may look like he's going to give you life. He may promise you things, but in the end, he'll only kill, steal, and destroy. That is the one who Jesus says is the archon of this world. You want to know why the world's so screwed up? Well, you're finding out right here. And he's the one who has the power of death. Satan is the one who has the power of death, which tells you that death is an alien intruder in this world. Now, death is just a natural product of the laws of nature as they're operating right now. According to the laws of nature, we all die, we all get diseases, we all get... All the things that Jesus treated in his ministry are natural products of nature as it is now. And yet, the Gospels always regard that stuff as being demonic. It's of demonic origin, which tells us that the laws of nature as they are now, the laws that produce cancer and all the other things that we suffer... Those aren't designed by God. Those have been corrupted by the powers. And so we live in this spiritual oppressed world, folks. you got to appreciate the bad news if you're going to appreciate the good news. The bad news is that we are royally screwed up and jacked. This world is just corrupted to the core, every square inch of it. It's, it's polluted, it's tainted, and it's broken. 
This whole world is broken and in pain. It's all groaning. And we're born into this broken world. And we're, for the moment we're born, and even before, in some cases, we join the groaning of this universe. We join the pain and brokenness of this universe. We're born in an enslaved and corrupted creation. And all of us are broken in a multitude of ways. We're all broken physically. For some, it's more obvious than others, but all of us are broken physically. Our bodies don't operate the way, exactly the way that God would have ideally designed them. We're always subject to disease and infirmities and aging, for example. Nothing operates the way it's supposed to. And the older you get, the more that is true. Somebody say amen this morning. Amen. It wasn't supposed to be this way. Break down like this. Warranty used up. Sorry, can't walk anymore. No, it, we're all born physically broken. We're all born mentally broken. None of us controls our thoughts very much. It's like the thoughts control us. We're able to with intentionality, but it takes a lot of intentionality, and most people don't do that. And, and we're, we're, we've seen in the last couple of weeks in, ser- in the sermon series that our, our, our brains are inherently self-centered and self-righteous. We, we, we find judging to be so natural. And, and, and uh, a lot of, we just don't think the mind doesn't do what the mind was supposed to do in every case. And we're all born spiritually corrupt. For all of us, to be honest, there's all, all of us have areas of our life where living for God just doesn't come natural. In fact, sitting comes very natural. That's our problem. <laughs> See, it's very natural to, yeah, it just comes up way too natural. We're all born spiritually corrupt to the point that Paul says several times, actually, that we're dead in sin. We are dead in sin, not just wounded, you know, not just injured, but dead in sin. It doesn't mean that we're as evil as we could possibly be. It just means that we can't resurrect ourselves. We can't heal ourselves. We can't fix ourselves. We can't bridge the gulf between us and God. We're dead. We're helpless. Left to our own devices. This is why, this is why Jesus forbids this, 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 uh, who's, this stupid religious judgmental who's more broken than who game. It, 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 that's like two corpses arguing about who's deader. <laughs> Think about it. Man, do you stink. You've been rotten for four days. I've only been rotten for three days. Oh, you really stink. I'm going to call you stinky. You know, you're both disqualified from the land of the living. You both stink, and no one really cares who is one day farther ahead. Give him another day, and he'll be there. Let's just, let's all admit, we're all broken. We all need fixing. And there's no spot or any reason to ask who's more broken than who. We're all equally broken. We all equally need fixing. Fortunately, we all equally have a Savior named Jesus Christ. Praise God. Hallelujah. Get rid of the judgment game. Amen. The only relevant question to ask is how can we love one another toward wholeness? That's the only relevant question. We're all broken. Playing fields level. All right. Now, how do we love each other into wholeness? That's the only relevant kingdom question to ask. Get rid of the judgment game. Praise God. Well, see, here's the thing. So the world is oppressed. It's a very, that's the bad news. It's spiritually oppressed. We're in like a prison of this darkness, deception. The Bible even calls this age an evil age. We're living in an evil age, a dark age. Everything's sort of screwed up. The good news is this. And this brings me to why, why Jesus appeared. Jesus came to get at the root of the problem, to go right to the source of the evil and the corruption. And this is what happens on the cross. So, uh, for example, in Hebrews 2, the author says that since the children share flesh and blood, that's us, he himself likewise shared the same things so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, and that is the devil. Why did Jesus come? It was to destroy the one who had the power of death, the one who had corrupted nature to bring about this death. Jesus came to liberate this creation by defeating the powers that oppress it. 
And then we read this in, in, in 1 John. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. This is the answer that everyone gave for the first thousand years of church history. Why did Jesus die? To destroy the works of the devil. It's right there in the Bible. And then just, just before his crucifixion, <clears throat> when referring to his crucifixion, Jesus said this, Now is the judgment of this world because he was going to stand in our place and absorb all the death consequences of our sin. And then he says, Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. As he absorbs our judgment, he drives out the ruler of this world, praise God. One author described this as, as Jesus' ultimate exorcism. See, the, the love that was revealed on Calvary, the love that was revealed on Calvary, uh, the way light pushes back darkness, right? By its very nature, it pushes back darkness. And what we're learning here is that the love of God, the perfect love of God revealed on Calvary, was, had the power of dispelling the darkness, driving off that darkness, causing the kingdom of darkness to, to self-implode. And see, Jesus is the perfect expression of love, the unsurpassably perfect expression of love. Uh, because here, God Almighty crossed an infinite distance to become flesh and blood, and then to become our sin and our curse. He couldn't have gone farther in all eternity than God actually went on our behalf. And so, in Jesus, we find the perfect expression of love. And it took that perfect expression of love. Here's why Jesus had to die. That perfect expression of love, that self-sacrificial love, that other-oriented love, it took that to go to the source of all evil and abolish the source of all evil and eradicate the source of all evil. Uh, Jesus had to die to reveal who God really was, to defeat the enemy, to drive him out. And, 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 and so, folks, that, what that means, that means a lot of things, but and it's all good, but it means this, that the cross brings an end, in principle, to the deceiver. All throughout history, Satan has been lying to us about who God is, still is doing that. And it's that those lies that entrap us, that keep us from even wanting anything to do with God. The people wanting to crucify God. The lies that we believe. And so throughout history, the powers have been playing us by getting us to chase after gods in our own image. Nationalistic gods, patriotic gods, military gods, warrior gods, fighting gods, gods on our side against you, that, those kind of gods. And nothing in, the, nothing in history is called more bloodshed than that. People chasing after false gods, fighting for God and country. When when Jesus shows up, he reveals a very, very different kind of God. Hallelujah. As I said, this is not an us versus them kind of a God. This is an all-inclusive God. A God who's on everyone's side and swears off all violence. A God who's radiantly beautiful. Praise God. And so with the cross, now we're able to see finally what God really is like. And who would have thought? God's like this, hanging on a cross for you, out of love for you. Uh, who would have thought God would have been this beautiful? But that's who God reveals himself to be. The deceiver's been defeated. And part of the deceiver being defeated means that the accuser's been defeated, praise God. The enemy destroyed the works of the devil, and one of the works of the devil is accusation. It's condemnation. It's judgment. Uh, Paul tells us in Colossians 2 that when Jesus died, uh, God took everything that stood against us, everything the enemy had on us, every sin we ever committed, because that's what, what, what makes us a slave to him, Everything we've ever done, every lie you ever told, every person you've ever hated, every person you've ever judged, every person you've ever refused to love, all your apathy for the poor, whatever, everything was nailed to the cross. And when it was nailed to the cross, Paul says it was erased. Hallelujah. It was erased. What was erased is all condemnation, all accusation, the whole judgmental comparison, evaluation, critical analysis machine that the enemy operates with. And it's always the enemy who does that. It was all blown sky high, praise God. That's why Paul goes on to say that the enemy now has been disempowered. He's got nothing on you. Because it was all taken care of 2,000 years ago. Uh, so, so what the cross reveals, folks, is that it's not God holding our sin against us. We just read Paul say that he doesn't hold our sin against us. He doesn't hold our sin against us because he blew up that whole thing, that whole, that whole economy of accusation. 
It's not God who's saying every sin must be punished. That's Satan. It's not God who's saying I demand some blood for every sin. No, that's Satan. We've just confused God and Satan too much, you guys. God reveals his, his love covers a multitude of sin. His love blows away condemnation. His love rolls away accusation. Satan is the inspector Chevert who just kind of, he's got to punish every little sin. And see, what that does, folks, is it frees us to live by grace rather than fear. It frees us to be compelled by the love of God rather than some, rather than some external thing. It frees us to be transformed from the inside out by the love of God rather than trying futilely to transform ourselves in by doing a bunch of rules. Praise God. The resurrection confirms that the powers of darkness have been defeated. But now, there's one last question you've got to ask, and that is this. If the powers of darkness have been defeated, why haven't they been defeated? Uh, if, the, if the creation's been liberated, why, does the creation, why isn't the creation liberated? If, 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 if the cross has reconciled everything to God and brought peace to everything, why is nature still so red in tooth and claw? And if the accuser's been defeated, why do so many of us struggle with accusations? And if the deceiver's been defeated, why do so many of us still fall for the deception? See, here's the thing. And this is what's called the already not yet paradox of the New Testament. It gives us two perspectives. On the one hand, uh, the Bible says very clearly that when Jesus died, already Satan is defeated, already the earth is liberated, already human beings are reconciled to God. And there's a sense which is already done. There's nothing more to do. It's, it's accomplished. The, the, the enemy has been defeated and driven out of this world. But on the other hand, the authors who wrote this, they weren't Pollyannish. They, they, they were realists. They all, most of them got martyred. They, they knew that we don't yet see this manifested. And so there's this not yet quality. We're waiting for it to see it manifest. It's already true, but we don't yet see it. You might think of it like this. That on the cross and with the resurrection, the seed of this new liberated creation was planted. The seed of this revolution that would ultimately take back the planet for God. It was planted. In principle, it's already here. It's just a matter of time before it's fully manifested. The seed was there. But now we're in an age where that seed is growing. And this is the age of travail. We're groaning in labor pains, wanting to see this thing birth. It's already here in inception, but we want to see it fully manifested. And we're yearning for this. God, bring about the redemption of this creation, the redemption of our bodies. So finally we see your beauty reflected in everything, in all of creation. And, and, and there's this longing here. And then finally, when Jesus returns, it will be fully birthed. And the New Testament tells us that. We're not going to see it fully come until Jesus returns. We're in this in-between stage of groaning, of travailing. And we have a role to play in giving birth to this new creation. It's already here. Our job is to align ourselves with it and to manifest as much of the already, what God has done, in a world that doesn't yet acknowledge it. Uh, we're to align our thoughts and lives with, 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 with Christ and not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Um, we have a role to play in this because God... He loves to do things in partnership. He's a relational God. doesn't want to do everything on his own. And so he empowers us now to do what he, we were originally created to do, which is to carry out his will on earth as it is in heaven and to push back the powers of darkness as we do it. And we're preparing the way for him to return when he'll finally set up the whole thing. Uh, that's the stage we're in. And so but God's got a purpose for your life, a plan for your life. Maybe you didn't know this, but God is yearning for you to join a revolution of people. Who are new creationists, who understand what's going on in this world. Amen. He wants you to join a community of people who are out there to groan to see this thing birthed into this world. It starts with a personal relationship with Jesus. That's the center of the center in the kingdom. You can't ride anyone else's coattails, right? You've got to develop your own relationship with Jesus. And that just means surrender the steering wheel of your life over to, to, to him. Make him Lord of your life. Just turn over the steering wheel and start to cultivate a relationship with him. 
And start growing in that love. And then it's about committing to, to now no longer living for yourself, but to live for him and for the kingdom. And it's about repenting, where you just change your way of thinking. You're no longer going to live in a self-centered narrative. You're going to live in a Christ-centered narrative. That's what it is to follow Jesus. And you're no longer going to live in a short narrative. You're going to start living in a long narrative. Because to follow Jesus means you believe in the resurrection, and that, folks, changes everything. You live in a narrative, but it doesn't end with your own death. Try this out. You live in a narrative where you intentionally go beyond death to think of what comes next. You think about this creation where Paul has the audacity to say that the sufferings of this present age, think of the sufferings of this present age, they can be nightmares beyond imagination, but the sufferings of this present age aren't worth comparing to the glory that awaits us. Folks, live, out, live in a narrative where it ends glorious, praise God. And you know then that because Jesus rose from the dead, you will rise from the dead. Death is not the end. And you know that because Jesus conquered, sent death in the grave, he was victorious, that there'll come a time, envision this, this is what faith is all about. There'll come a time when everything that's off, wrong, broken, and painful in this world will be eradicated. Because the source of all evil has been eradicated. Live in that narrative. Because of the resurrection, you know there'll be a time when all the walls that separate people will be torn down. Because the peace of the cross is already beginning to permeate all of creation and redeem all of creation. And you know there's just a matter of time before everything that was broken finally is healed. Hallelujah. And everything that was lost gets restored. Amen. And everything that, 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 that is already be, is beautified, praise God. And God then, his love fills all in all. There'll be a time when there'll be no more racism and no more hatred and no more violence and no more crimes and no more sickness and no more death and no more despair. Hallelujah. And God's love will define every square inch of the cosmos. I can't wait. Hallelujah. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Praise God. To follow Jesus is to live in that narrative. But it starts with a personal relationship. And so if you're here this morning and you don't have that personal relationship, you haven't turned over the steering wheel over to him. Maybe you have and you took it back. That happens sometimes. Give it back to him. And if you're here this morning and want to find out more about how to get started on that walk with God, um, there'll be some folks here at the front of the auditorium. And just come up here and tell them that you're interested in finding out about that and they'll explain what it is uh, to put your faith in Christ and start walking with him. Hallelujah! Christ is risen! Stand up! All right. As we leave this place, can we do it as ambassadors of our resurrected Lord, living in the power of his resurrection love, amen? Uh, living a life that pushes back on the darkness and that puts forth his character. God bless you guys. If you agree with that, say amen and go out and love your neighbors. Amen. amen. Hello again, lovely parishioners. Greg Boyd here, senior pastor of Woodland Hills Church, and I want to wish you a happy Easter. Actually, it's Easter for me, but it's probably not for you since you're listening to this probably or watching this sometime after Easter. So whenever it is for you, I hope you had a great Easter, and thanks so much for, for tuning in. If you tuned in last week, you know that uh, every, around this time of year, we, we always kick off uh, our, what we call our Sustain campaign. This is the one time of year when we ask our extended family of Wilton Hills Church, that's our pod parishioners, that's you, uh, to prayerfully consider signing up for regular donations to our, to our church. Your support really does help sustain the ministry of Wilton Hills Church, and we appreciate it a great deal. To become a sustainer, it's easy. Just go to whchurch.org sustain and sign up for a weekly or monthly donation schedule. Uh, the average contribution is around $10 or so, but don't feel constrained by that. But we appreciate any kind of amount that you commit to. And as a small token of appreciation, we'll send you one of our nifty 2019 Podrishner t-shirts. Woo! So this year, our goal was to have 400 sustainers. And so far, after one week, we're up to 304. So hallelujah! Uh, many of the folks uh, who have signed up already are just carrying over donation schedules from last year, which really helps us in our planning. So thank you very, very much. Again, please consider signing up. Just go to whchurch.org 
slash sustain. Thanks for working to build the kingdom in your neck of the woods and for tuning in. God bless you guys. Have a great week.